faith. What is it? Being sure of our hope. Convinced of what we can't see. By faith, we understand the world was set in order at God's command. By faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain. And for his faith, God commended him as righteous. By faith, Noah trusted God and constructed an ark for the deliverance of his family. By faith, Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, believing God would still fulfill his promises. By faith, Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy sin's fleeting pleasure. By faith, God's chosen nation crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and praised him as it swallowed up the Egyptians. By faith, Rahab the prostitute escaped destruction because she welcomed the spies in peace. Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, David, and the prophets. By faith, they administered justice, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire. But others were imprisoned, murdered, and wandered in deserts, mountains, and openings in the earth. We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. So get rid of every weight, of every sin, and run. Run with endurance the race set before us. Your eyes fixed on Jesus. He is the champion and guide of our faith. For promised joy, he endured the cross, thought nothing of its shame, and having risen again, has been handed his deserved glory at the right hand of the throne of God. So is everybody warm enough? Am I not on? I'm not on. How's that? Oh, there we go. Okay, that's cool. So what we want to do is all the introverts, just stay where you are. No one's going to come close to you. Now, you extroverts can get together and get warm. So kind of slide over, cuddle up, you know, and it'll, it'll all be good. Uh, in case you haven't heard, we had a gas leak this week and had to turn off the gas. And, of course, all of our heat is gas. So uh, it's a little nippy, but, uh, you know, what I discovered is if you all came and stood up here, it's about four or five degrees warmer this high up in the room. And so if you all want to come up and join me, we can, we can make that work. We've been in this series on faith for the last couple of Sundays. We'll continue for two more Sundays, challenging our our hearts and our minds about our faith and our trust and our confidence in God. Back in the 1960s, 1966 to 1973, one of my favorite TV programs that I love to watch every week was Mission Impossible. And I, I looked forward for lots of reasons. I had a secret crush on Leslie Ann Warren. Um, that was kind of part of my motivation, I think, as a teenager. But uh, I know my wife's not happy with that. Sorry. Are you just now finding out about Leslie Ann? 
Gee, that's been a secret I've kept for over 55 years. Anyway, um, I loved Mission Impossible, and I always looked forward to that opening scene, you know, where uh, Peter Graves, the actor Peter Graves, was the one I remember. And uh, he would get the little cassette tape, and he'd play the message, and he'd get the assignment. And do you remember at the end of the message what the tape said? This message will self-destruct. But the line in the middle of the message every week that captured my attention um, had to do with this mission, should you decide to accept it. And so there was a choice to accept, right? And that was followed by, uh, if anyone is uh, captured or killed, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of, you know. But impossible stuff like that always fascinated me. And, and maybe that's why I'm drawn frequently to those those stories in the Bible about impossible situations. And if you think about it, there's a bunch of impossible situations presented to us in the Scriptures, right? What's the first one that jumps to your mind? Joshua, the city of Jericho. What's the second one that jumps to your mind? Daniel, the lion's den. What's the next one? Moses, the Red Sea, the ten plagues, all of that. You're still missing the big one. David and Goliath, I heard that one. Um, There's so many of those impossible stories that we're drawn to. And I want you to come with me this morning to one of my favorite impossible stories in the book of 1 Samuel in in, um, chapters 13 and 14. And I love this quote that I put. I think I put it in your notes. I I haven't looked at my notes since last Tuesday when I gave it to Lulu. Um, But Zig Ziglar said this, It's amazing how many people say that they believe that God divided the Red Sea or raised Jesus from the dead, but they don't have the faith to trust Him for this month's car payment. There's a lot of wisdom captured in that. Because we open our Bibles, we have all these great stories, and and we're people of faith, right? You know, Pastor Oscar has talked to us about the difference between being a person of faith and a person of fear. Uh, challenging us to feed our faith instead of feeding our fear. And so we want to be people of faith. And what I want you to grab this morning is that people of faith trust God even in impossible situations. People of faith trust God even in impossible situations. And so I want us to come to 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14. And on the one hand, I'd love to take the time to read both of these chapters in their total. And I don't want to do that. (laughs) I'm hoping you'll kind of follow up and come back and and read it all and and maybe take a fresh look at it. But I want to jump into these two chapters and highlight the courage, confident faith of Jonathan, the son of King Saul. Because he is a model to me of a person of faith who trusts God in an impossible situation. And so as you come with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13, we find that King Saul has now been king, some guess, a couple of years. He's just become king, chapter 10, 11, and 12. He's he's just become king. He's brand new at this king thing. And here we are in chapter 13 and 14 with the first big, well actually it's the second big challenge in his role as king, because they're in combat with the Philistines, the the lifelong enemy of Israel. They're in combat with the Philistines. And so as the chapter opens, that's where we are. 
And we read these words. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself, there's a lot of detail here, by the way, that you want to pay attention to. Details matter, right? Someone say yes. Okay, details matter, and details in your scriptures matter a lot. So pay attention to details, because there will be a quiz. So, I got your attention now. So, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash, and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. And you add those together and you get 3,000, right? You tracking? But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. Someone have a different word than odious in your translation? None of us know what that word means. Well, I got about six of them. What were they? <laughs> an abomination? That's an interesting word for odious. What's the King James say? That must be right, right? So, Saul and Jonathan, between them, have how many soldiers? 3,000. Okay, you're tracking. By the way, when the word went out into the land about this victorious battle, what what did people hear? Who who the leader was that, that accomplished this great victory? Saul. But your Bible says the person that accomplished this great victory was... Jonathan, that, I think that's important in a few minutes. Um, and so here we are. All Israel hears this news now in verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. More details. How, how overmatched is Israel? Do the math. Someone do the math. So we got 30,000, right? And 6,000. And if I add those together, I get 36,000. And we just discovered that Saul and Jonathan had 3,000. And so the odds are 12 to 1. Thank you, you math majors. So they're badly overmatched. Oh, by the way, that's what the numbers tell us. They're overmatched 12 to 1 in combat. But did you notice the last sentence I read? And people like the sand which is on the seashore. These are important details. They're going to matter a lot in just a few minutes. So when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, and the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits... Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling. So what we discover as this chapter opens is that the obstacles that the people of Israel are facing, Saul and his son Jonathan, are overwhelming obstacles. They're significantly outnumbered by the enemy, right? So the strength of the enemy is an obstacle. The other obstacle that I see here is 
Saul is inactive. Saul's not doing anything. Jonathan's the one who's highlighted. So here's the king, the leader. He's on the bench. And here's Jonathan out defeating the Philistines. The other problem that Saul has is this next paragraph that I want to summarize instead of reading it. Saul has been waiting for Samuel the prophet to come to make a sacrifice and ask God's blessing on their combat. And Saul is impatient. Samuel doesn't show up. So what does Saul do? In his words, he forces himself to make the sacrifice himself. And as soon as he's done making the sacrifice, guess who shows up? Samuel. Samuel rebukes Saul for doing what the prophet priest should be doing. And then he says to Saul, and he's only been the king for a short time, right? And so he says to Saul, oh, where shall I jump in here? Um, Oh, in verse uh, 12, Saul says, I force myself. And Samuel says to him, you have acted foolishly. I'm in verse 13. You with me? He says, you have acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But, there's a lesson here about disobedience, by the way. God would have established His kingdom forever. But, now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for Himself a man after His own heart. The Lord has appointed Him as a ruler over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. (laughs) And so, Saul is in a weakened condition. Brand new king, going downhill fast. Probably uh, discouraged with that news disappointed at least, overwhelmed, but he's inactive. Oh, and if you, if you read down a little further, the weaponry that the people of Israel have in their hands is farm tools. The Philistines have removed all the blacksmiths from the land of Israel, killed them or captured them. I'm not sure, a little bit of both maybe. And so it says that the children of Israel are sharpening their plowshares, their mattocks, which is like a, our pickaxe, and they're going into combat with farm tools. There's two people that have swords, Saul and Jonathan. And so what we see here is obstacles that are overwhelming. And now I want to show you the geography of where we are because the difficulty of Jonathan and Saul's situation is really, really complex. And so David put up that first picture that, uh, okay, you've got to catch up, catch up, catch up, catch up, catch up, go, catch up, mustard, catch up, whatever it takes. There we go. So here's the picture of what this valley looks like today. And you've got the steep slopes on both sides, Right? So if you're in combat, where do you want to be? High ground. Always want high ground. Well, guess who has the high ground? Philistines. And so this next picture that David's going to put up for us will show you kind of the, the movements of the, of the troops. There it is. And so, if, can you see the number four all the way in the back? 
Okay, that's Michmash. And number one on this side over here is Geba, where Saul and Jonathan are. And these arrows show the, the kind of the flow of the Philistines. They're moving to surround. They've got the high ground, and they've outnumbered Israel by 12 to 1 or a lot worse. And so they're in this incredibly impossible situation. The odds against them are incredibly, incredibly high. People of faith trust the Lord even in impossible situations. And I don't know this morning if if you have an impossible situation in your life. We all face impossible situations in the course of our lives, don't we? I think we do. At least they, they may not be impossible, but we think they are. And you might find yourself this morning in an impossible situation financially, where bills are bigger than the money that's coming in, right? Anybody pay your gas bill this week, by the way? How many of you had your gas bill double over last December? Yeah, yeah. Um, gas has come down a, a little bit, right? And we're all celebrating that it's under $4 a gallon. Well, in January of 2020, it was two eighty-nine. So, there's... I didn't hear that. Maybe I didn't want to hear it. Um, so, there's, there's financial situations that seem impossible. Um, oftentimes, there's relationship situations that seem impossible. You get crosswise with a person at work and there's conflict, or worse yet, you get crosswise with your boss and there's conflict. Impossible situation. What do you do? Maybe you have a, a wayward child, a prodigal, and it just seems impossible, and you pray and pray and pray and nothing changes. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you've been praying for that would come to know Jesus, and you've been praying for years, decades. Impossible situation. People of faith trust God even in impossible situations. As I was preparing this message and thinking about impossible situations and reflecting back on my life, one of the things that struck me was that most of the impossible situations that I've faced have involved houses. We had a small our first house was a small, less than a thousand square foot home in Long Beach. And when I left Long Beach to go pastor in Sacramento, of course, we put that house on the market. And it sat on the market and sat on the market. And we had open houses and nobody came. We had more open houses and nobody came. And uh, we're praying and the truck's getting packed and we're ready to go to Sacramento. And nobody's coming to look at our house. Well, then finally, one person showed up to look at our house and bought the house, and off we went. But for a long time, it looked like an impossible situation. I remember when we moved from Sacramento to pastor in Modesto, we did not have a place to live. And for three months, we migrated. We spent... Uh, several weeks in an old, run-down uh, mobile home. You could see through the walls um, out on a farm in Modesto. And uh, we were there for several weeks, and then we house-set for some people that were traveling. And we were, we were just kind of this migrant family that just moved around uh, Modesto. 
And um, we finally got to the point, I was just so frustrated. And Lord, you know, here I am. What am I supposed to do? And I need a house for my family. And oh, well. And so I gave up and said, okay, Lord, we're going to go find a place to rent. Buying a house is not in the question. Not going to happen. And as soon as we made that decision, the next morning, my friend Georgia called and she says, I have a house for you. Right. Sure. Okay. You know, we've been hearing this for weeks. And she shows us this house. It's in foreclosure. The grass is like this high. Um, And so we went into this house. And it was the exact same house we'd had in Sacramento, except 180 degrees. And it was in foreclosure. The bank was anxious to sell it. My friend Van, who was an accountant, went into the bank president, talked them into closing escrow in 10 days and cutting another $1,000 off the price. And a week and a half later, we were in our new house. But it just seemed so impossible for so long. Have you ever experienced that? Impossible stuff. People of faith trust God even in impossible situations, whatever that is. You got an impossible situation in your life? My wife had an email from her sister yesterday. New impossible situation in our family. Overwhelmingly impossible. Where do you turn? Aren't you glad you know the Lord? I, you know, she got that email and she called her, her other sister and they prayed and she called a friend and they prayed and I came home and we prayed. Um, what do you do in impossible situations? Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. People of faith trust the Lord even in impossible situations. So here's Jonathan and Saul. And Saul is inactive He's bummed, bummed, no doubt, with this news that, you know, his kingdom is short-lived. And Jonathan's the one that we want to watch and pay attention to. And so from this, these obstacles that are just impossible, Jonathan conceives a strategy that he wants to employ. And in some ways, this strategy seems kind of crazy to me. But, well, we need to read the story and so, here, here's this whole, whole situation, and I need to get back in the right chapter here. Um, and so, as you turn the page, at least in my Bible, and you come to chapter 14, we're going to get caught up here. So, here's Jonathan, and it's, chapter 14 opens this way. Now, the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. So, Jonathan's on this side of that valley I just showed you. He wants to challenge the, the Philistines on this side. He has to be in the valley coming up that slope to the enemy on top, right? And so, here's Jonathan with this crazy, crazy idea um, And in the notes that I gave to you, I suggested it involves great risk. The Philistines have the high ground, right? High ground, that's where you want to be in combat. And Jonathan's going to approach that that high ground. And so Jonathan, to me, demonstrates um, great courage. He says to his armor bearer in uh, these opening verses, he says, Come... 
let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that's on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Huh. I wonder why not. <laughs> Maybe he would, Amy. I don't know. He might have talked him out of it. Right. This is a crazy plan. He says to his armor bearer, let's, let's just cross over to the garrison on the other side. Saul's out in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree. So he's parked on his rear end under this pomegranate tree sitting. Jonathan's in motion. Jonathan's in action. People of faith. People of faith. Trust God even with the impossible. And so it says the people who were with him were about 600 men. That's with Saul. And so the odds are reduced now. They started off with 3,000, and then we read that couple of sentences where all the people are out hiding and all the places, and he's got less than 600 men, so the odds are worse. And now it's Jonathan and his armor bearer. And if you can count up to two, you know how many people that is, right? Two guys, Jonathan and his armor bearer. And so the, J- Jonathan's courage to say to his armor bearer, let's cross over. Let's see what's going on. And uh, we come down a little further. And, uh, oh, verse 4. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there's a sharp crag on one side, sharp crag on the other side. And he says in verse 5, The one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash, the other on the south opposite Geba. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, to his young man who's carrying his armor, Come! Let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Here's confidence in the Lord. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not constrained to save by many or by few. That's the key verse in these two chapters. God doesn't require great masses of people. God doesn't require great strength. God can save by many. He can save by few if He chooses, right? People of faith trust God even in impossible circumstances. And so we have Jonathan's courage. We have his confidence in God. And now his armor bearer responds to him. And he says, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself and here I am with you according to your desire. You know, if I was Jonathan's armor bearer and... He told me this plan. Let, let's cross over and go. I would. I, I think I would have said something to Jonathan about, don't you think we should pray about this? Should we get a second opinion? <laughs> Armor bears, totally on board. Do all that's in your heart. Turn yourself. Here I am with you according to your desire. And then Jonathan said, Behold. He's looking now for confirmation from the Lord, and that's the purpose of where this is going. He says, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. So we're going we're gonna to climb up this precipice, up this crag, up this cliff, and we're going to reveal ourselves to the Philistines. And one of two things is going to happen. So he says, Behold, we'll cross over. Reveal ourselves to them. They, if they, if they say to us, "Wait until we come to you," then we will stay in our place and not go up. So, if they say, "Wait until we come to you," that would demonstrate great courage on their part. 
Because they have no idea that it's only two guys. They have no idea what the odds and obstacles are going to be once they go down to encounter Jonathan and his armor bearer. So that's one option. If they say that, Jonathan says, we're holding our ground where we are. But he says, um, if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. Because if they say, come up to us, they, they have less courage, less confidence. Because they, 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 they're dealing with what's known on top. Down here, it's unknown. And so Jonathan lays this out. If they say, come up to us, then, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands. And this will be the sign to us. So he's looking for God to confirm that this is the plan. This is what he ought to be doing. And so when both of them revealed themselves... I'm in verse 11, if I lost you, by the way, in chapter 14. You all there? When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. (laughs) So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us. We will tell you something. (laughs) And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. Now, there's a little detail there that I don't want you to miss. It says they climbed up on their hands and feet. What does that tell you? Steep? Good. What else does it tell you? Who said that? There you go, Don. Not carrying weapons. So Jonathan is one of only two people that has a sword. His armor bearer doesn't have a sword, if I read the text correctly. He's got some farm tool, maybe. They're climbing up hands and feet. Where's his sword? In the sheath, in the scabbard. And so he's climbing up totally defenseless, right? Totally. And uh, I just go, man, he's got courage. He's trusting the Lord. And so he climbs up, hands and feet, with his armor bearer behind him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer. His armor bearer put some to death after him. The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half a furrow in an acre of land. That, that's the first slaughter, it says. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a great trembling. And so the success that Jonathan accomplished was incredibly um, significant. He defeats the garrison that's up on the top of this crag, up on top of this cliff, And the result is that the whole entire Philistine army is thrown into disarray. And we finally wind up at the end of the chapter where it says, you know, Saul finally gets aroused with his soldiers. People people that have been in holes hiding all come out of their hiding. Some who had left Saul and gone and joined with the Philistines now turn coat on the Philistines. All this is going on, and the Scripture records in verse 23... The Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond beth And so there's this incredible victory that came about 
Because Jonathan, a man of faith, trusted God, even in an impossible situation. This is an amazing story to me. Um, I'm not a risk taker. I, I tend to kind of plan and preclude risk. If I can figure out what could possibly go wrong and fix it before it can go wrong, I, th- I see that as a good thing, right? Running risk is not part and parcel of who I am. And if you're one of those people that loves to run risk, we're just like light years apart. I do not like to run risk. And so I marvel when I read the story of Jonathan climbing this crag, weapon in its scabbard, hand over foot, up this cliff, defeating this garrison of well-armed, well-trained soldiers. People of faith trust God even in impossible situations. There's a little side note here that I found fascinating. In 1917, the Turks had control of Israel. And a a British general brought British troops into Israel, General Allenby. He brought British troops into Israel and finally conquered and drove the Turks out of Jerusalem and all the important parts of Israel. 1917. And the only stronghold that he could not defeat was the stronghold of the Turks at Michmash. One of his officers kept thinking to himself as he, as he was laying in bed one night, The name Micmash is so familiar to me. Why? Why do I... I'm so focused that I I can't put the pieces together. And whether it was his great memory or the Holy Spirit or however this happens, he remembered this story in 1 Samuel 14. The story of Jonathan climbing this crag. And so he got out of his bed went to General Allenby and said, you've got to read this portion of the Scriptures. And so he showed his Bible to General Allenby, and they read together these two chapters. And based on these two chapters, they developed a plan to find where Jonathan had climbed up. And at night, in the dark, British troops climbed that same route and defeated the Turks and took control of all of Israel. (laughs) That's just a little side note I thought was interesting. So if people of faith trust God even in impossible situations, what lessons can you and I learn from Jonathan? And I have several uh, lessons that speak to me that I want to suggest to you this morning. Um... And the first, we just read this. The first lesson I learned, God does not require great size, large numbers, exceptional skill or ability in order to accomplish His plans. God doesn't need our help, right? God doesn't need our help. And I think so often we have this idea that the the more, more is better. That's not always the case. Remember what God did with Gideon's little army? Reduced it down to 300 men. 
God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need big numbers. He doesn't need our abilities. He needs our availability. If you're available to God, it doesn't take dozens, hundreds, thousands. This story, it just took two guys of courage. And I've often wondered about this armor bearer dude. Uh, did he have the same confidence in God that Jonathan did? Or was, he, was his confidence in Jonathan? I don't know. I've got some ideas. But... And so whether, whether it's the Bible story of David and Goliath, uh, Moses against Pharaoh, um, <laughs> God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need big numbers. By the way, Sometimes we have this idea that if we could just get 50 people together to pray, that would be more powerful than just two of us praying. Is that true? Now, there's great value in being together in a group and praying, but it's not about the numbers because the important thing is the God in the equation, not the people in the equation, right? That's why people of faith trust God, even in impossible situations. Um, another lesson that speaks to me here is that real faith is often substituted with reliance on religious acts. That was Saul's mistake. He was counting on this sacrifice. Jonathan, or Samuel needed to come. Samuel needed to make the sacrifice, offer prayers to God, get God's blessing for their battle. And so for Saul, it was all about the, the religious actions that needed to be take place. And so he says he forced himself to do that. Now I think sometimes we substitute faith and trust in God with religious actions. And whether it's reading your Bible every day, which is a good thing I recommend, Praying every day, another good thing I recommend. But whatever the religious act is, serving as an usher, serving as a science school teacher, uh, serving on the worship team, doing this, doing that, none of that substitutes for trusting God. Trusting Him in, in our difficult and even impossible situations. A third thought I had as I thought about this is, real faith sees beyond the obstacles. To see the power of God. You know, the, the obstacles that Jonathan faced should have overwhelmed him. Should have staggered him. It staggers me just to read them. But real faith sees beyond those obstacles. Whatever the obstacle and challenge is in your life and my life today, this week, we need to see beyond that and see our God. Bigger. What's that song say? Bigger better, stronger, greater. We need to see that. I need, I need to see that. I need to embrace that. You're familiar with uh, the name Corey Ten Boom. She wrote the book, uh, The Hiding Place. Her story, along with her sister Betsy, of being um, taken by the Nazis and turned in a prison camp where her sister died, um, Corey Ten Boom had a definition of faith that I like. You've, you've heard me say the, the word faith, forsaking all I trust Him. 
Well, she had another one that I liked a lot. Fantastic adventuring in trusting Him. Fantastic adventuring. Do you think of your life as a follower of Jesus as a fantastic adventure? I don't think we always see it that way. I kind of captured by that that idea. Uh, a fourth thing that spoke to me in this story, uh, real faith acts and risks in spite of the odds. <laughs> Jonathan took action while King Saul has his little buns parked under the pomegranate tree. Totally inactive, doing nothing. And you know, sometimes we have this idea that um, we just pray... You know, I'm praying for a job. Well, that's good. Have you filled out any resumes? Or are you knocking on any doors? You know, it kind of both go hand in hand, don't they? Pray and act. And uh, when I act, I act. When I pray, God acts. And so there's a, there's a combination there. Um, running risk in spite of the odds. Uh, a fifth thought that strikes me here. Real faith inspires others to take courage and act while often those closest to you oppose your steps of faith. Have you ever experienced that? Where you, you, have, you have confidence in God's leading, God's direction, this is where I'm going, this is what I believe God's doing, let's go, and, and the, the multitude is a little slow to respond and inactive. And Jonathan had this influence on his armor bearer. Let's go. Let's do this. And the armor bearer says, do whatever's in your heart. I'm with you. Let's go. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, the man who says it can't be done should not get in the way of the man doing it. Faith. Trust in our God. And then the last, the sixth thought that struck me as I reflected on this passage Real faith is seldom group stuff. It's an individual thing. One of the hardest things about faith. Faith, it doesn't seem to me, at least in my experience, and and I see this in Jonathan's story, faith seldom lands on a group as a whole. It's an individual who's that person of faith. It's the individual who's the one that that captures the vision of what God wants to accomplish, what God wants to do, and and that leader is is ready to go. And one of the most difficult things about leadership oftentimes is you have a vision, you know where you want to go, you believe it's where God wants you to go, and you're having trouble getting people on board. And I look at Jonathan and his armor bearer, and I'm impressed with Jonathan, yes, but the guy I'm really impressed with is the armor bearer. By the way, he doesn't have a sword. He's got a farm tool. And he says to Jonathan, I'm in. Let's go. I'm with you. You know, those are the the kind of people I love when I'm trying to lead. You're on board. Let's go. And so faith is an individual thing. It's not a group thing. And it took me a long time to realize that I shouldn't expect everybody else to automatically be on board with where I'm going, where I'm headed, what I want to accomplish. In God's time and in His way, He's going to bring that together. Faith is an individual thing. And so here's my challenge for you this morning. So what? Compare yourself this morning to Jonathan. 
how do you compare as a person of faith to Jonathan? How do you compare as a person who's trusting God in impossible situations? How do you compare to Jonathan as a risk taker? Boy, that's where I fall short. Some of the other stuff I can embrace, but it's that risk-taking thing. You know, let, let's let's cross over. Perhaps perhaps the Lord will will favor us. And here's the strategy. You know, big risk. How do you compare? How do you compare to Jonathan? What's the lesson the Lord wants you to learn from Jonathan this morning? And then what is God saying to you? Is there an impossible situation that he's placed you in? Impossible task or mission that he's asking you to undertake? Is there a risk he wants you to take? (laughs) I don't like that question. Ask God to increase your faith. I think Pastor Pastor Oscar kind of went over that idea real quickly, uh, either last Sunday or the Sunday before. The fact that the disciples gathered around Jesus and said to him, Lord, increase our faith. Is that an ambition in your heart? that God would deepen and strengthen and give you greater faith and trust in Him. Well, I compare myself to Jonathan, and I, I, my, my faith does, doesn't measure up to that. Lord, increase my faith. Lord, help me to trust You more. Help me to trust You with those impossible, difficult situations. Help me to trust You. I told you I don't run risk very well. As I thought about this in, in my life and thinking back to running risk, when, when we moved to Laverne in 1989 to pastor our church there, um, we rented a home. And then after about three months, the family that owned the home said, we've decided to sell the house. They, they were planning ultimately to move into the house and live there. And they said, we've decided to sell the house. So um, if you'd like, you can purchase the home. If not, you know, we'll put it on the market and, and, and sell it. And so Andrew and I decided, well, we're here and we might as well buy the house. But we didn't have the necessary funds to buy the house. And so the family that we bought the house from, they, they took back the loan on the house with a five-year balloon payment of $50,000. Five years is a long time, right? Wrong. So five years went by, and now the balloon payment is due. Not only do I not have $50,000, I cannot get a loan of $50,000, and... I cannot get anyone to refinance and restructure this thing. And so Andrew and I prayed and decided we're going to go talk to the family that owns the house or owned it before. And now with this balloon payment, it looks like they're going to own it again. 
And so we went to this family and, and sat down with them and we said, you know, we can't refinance. We don't have the balloon payment. So you, either we need to walk away from the house and you take it back or you forgive the $50,000 and we stay in the house. And they agreed to forgive the $50,000. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, wow. But when I think of impossible situations and running risk, going and having that conversation, basically asking them to forgive a $50,000. People of faith trust God in impossible situations. And I don't know what level of difficulty you find yourself in this week, what the challenges are, what the difficulties are. But we have a big God. He's able to handle whatever it is. And people of faith trust God, even in impossible situations. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to increase our faith. Lord, I love the words of the prophet Jeremiah. When he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you've created the heavens and the earth with your great power and your outstretched arm. There's nothing too difficult for you. And Lord, we so often are overwhelmed by the stuff of life. We're overwhelmed by financial difficulties. We're overwhelmed by relationship difficulties. We're often overwhelmed by health difficulties and we get captured and caught up in the difficulty, the problem, the impossibility of it all. And we forget that you are the creator of the heavens and earth. There's nothing too difficult for you. And so, Lord, we would agree together this morning with a simple prayer. Lord, increase our faith. Make me just a little bit more like Jonathan. Help me to develop just a little more that faith that Jonathan displayed. Come, let's cross over. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Lord, help us to face our challenge, our difficulty this week with that kind of confidence is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.